It is projected that with the same level of carbon emission, the global mortality rate will be 14 deaths per 100,000 by mid-century, as deadly as COVID-19, and by 2100, it could be five times as deadly. I have no intentions to scare you with these statistics, but to bring to your attention that climate change is not a problem of the next generation, but an existential threat right at our doorsteps. Tragically, billions of people who are the least responsible for greenhouse gas emissions will suffer the most from climate change. For instance, there are more than 500 billion smallholder farms worldwide, and when these small farms fail, the whole economy fails, leading to more poverty, hunger, and hardships. So, how do we get to net zero emissions and simultaneously help people adapt to a rapidly changing climate? Welcome to Tech Me to the Future, our podcast about technology, innovation, and their impact on society and human behavior. Please welcome your host, Mayang Sanchetti. Today, I got a chance to talk to Himanshu Gupta, who is the CEO of Climate AI based out of California and has been working in the climate and energy space for more than 14 years. He has worked with the US Vice President Al Gore and Lord Nicholas Stern in the past to draft public policies on climate change and the environment. He graduated from Stanford University with an MBA and MS in climate change. Before that, and soon after graduating from IIT Kharagpur, he also worked with Niti Aayog as lead modeler for the Emission Pathways Project for India. We talked about the climate change problem in general, what will it take for us to get to net zero CO2 emission, and how to deal with the adverse climate changes until then. We also talked about the impact of climate change in food production and the entire food supply chain in specific, and most importantly, how you and I can contribute to the climate change solution. Himanshu, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to Take Me to the Future. Well, of course, Mayank. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me. Seems like you have had like a good uh, lineup of guests. And uh, it seems like it's an important postcard you're running. Himanshu, tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, you have been in the climate and energy landscape for almost a decade now. Uh, Chamath of Network Capital has repeatedly said that the world's first billionaire, sorry, trillionaire, will be made in climate change. I'm not sure how true is that, but climate change is definitely one of the most intense and important subjects to study and work on in today's context. And you started on this journey almost a decade back when it was not as popular. How did that happen? Uh, yes, first of all, it's been 14 years uh, since I've you know, been working in the space of climate. Um, I worked in public sector, private sector, now as an entrepreneur. Um, I've done multiple roles like in product, sales, um, policy, and now as a CEO. Um, and of course, while Chamath might say that the first billionaire in climate uh, will be created in the next 10 years. I tend to think, look at it as like, it's the most pressing problem in the world that needs to be solved, period. And while you are solving those problems, you will end up creating value for someone. And if you're creating value, the, the market will, will value you as a billionaire or like as a unicorn and whatnot. So that's the lens I apply, which is, it's the most pressing problem to solve. While you're solving this problem, there'll be multiple opportunities created for like new solutions, uh, new business models and whatnot, and hence, uh, there will be you know, multiple unicorns that will be created in this space. Now, coming back to your question of my background, I come from a small village uh, in the north of India, been there almost for the last, I was there till like my high school. As they say, I've always lived in a bubble in my life because I lived, used to live in a village. I did not know what IIT system was in India till I was 13 or 14 years of age. 
And then I went to the IIT system. I did not know what Stanford system was or even what, what California was. And now I'm in California. Again, I'm living in a bubble where I know the rest of the US is very different from living in California. So my, my journey has been about bubbles, but then every bubble has been a great uh, learning experience. Uh, how did I get into the energy climate space? It's, it was more out of an accident, just like all the lower middle class kids coming out of the IIT system. I, I was interested in getting into the financial world and investment banking world. Like imagine 2006, 2007, when everyone was making a lot of money in investment banking. And if you were to ask uh, a middle class kid, hey, what would you want to do? Uh, of course, that kid would tell you like, hey, I want to make a lot of money. Fortunately for me, this was also the year where financial crisis happened, 2008. And it was around the same time when we were looking for jobs the entire class, and of course, around 10 million kids in India as well. And there were no jobs available in the financial sector. Don't get me wrong, uh, wireless communication, electrical engineering was always my passion. I used to love that. It's just like, you know, I thought like I can make, only make money uh, if I go to the, the financial world. Uh, now, because of, you know, because there was no jobs available in the financial sector, I had to take a job in a French energy company in their product team. Uh, now that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. That gave me an opportunity into like you know, grid systems globally. We were working on grid system in France, in, in India. And we realized the opportunities that exist, both from like uh, developing country lens, where around that time in 2010, 2011, there were around 400 million Indians that were still not getting the reliable supply of power and a quality supply of power. And then from a more developed country lens as well, where electricity was responsible for basically 20 to 30% of the emissions created by the sector. And both of these problems create opportunities of the kind of technologies you, de you deploy. And I, I was fortunate enough to work on technologies to sort of reduce emissions and work on smart grid efficiencies. So this, that gave me a lot of perspective about the opportunity that existed globally in the energy and climate world. Uh, and then fortunately, unfortunately, I saw an advertisement in newspapers about this job opportunity available in the government of India, especially in Planning Commission of India in the office of deputy chairman, I applied and I received a letter asking for an interview and then I joined. And around that time, government of India was looking to roll out 12 five-year plan for renewable energy, also like a 12 five-year plan for smart grids. So whatever I learned from the private sector, uh, I got to apply it in the public sector, but from a more macroeconomic uh, and social lens. So like two different experiences, but the base was like, I was a passionate electrical engineer that allowed me to contribute to public sector, private sector, and then the learnings I had from the private sector, I applied them to the public sector and, and the rest is history. Very interesting, Manshu, the way you maneuvered from a small village in North India to all the way to California through the education system of IIT to public sector and then private sector and now starting something of your own. I can totally resonate with you when you mentioned that, you know, as a middle class person, all you care about when you graduate is to earn money to, you know, sustain yourself and create that cushion of wealth. But I'm glad that you didn't choose a finance job and is working in an innovation space. I think we need more smart people to work in this innovation space rather than banking, et cetera. And I think if we follow the Adam Smith principle, if you're helping the world sustain and add value, you would get money as a result. Let's talk about climate now. Before we jump into what climate AI does, let's probably do some groundwork in terms of what is the problem that we are dealing with. 51 billion is how many tons of greenhouse gases the world adds to the atmosphere every year. It took me a while to actually sink into this number when I heard it for the first time. And, you know, Bill Gates makes a compelling case in his new book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, that it's not enough to reduce carbon emission. We need to make it absolute zero. 
or else we are eventually doomed what's your take about it is it really avoidable if yes what's the game plan for us to get to that zero emission future uh, you know it's it's a big question uh, i don't think i would be doing justice to this question by answering in 5 minutes you know bill gates might want to summarize a problem in a book but i don't think it could be summarized to me it's a bigger problem of sustainability i'll come to the climate problem today but you should look at what created this problem uh, the, the industrial revolution uh, led to you know, the rise of machines globally you know to power machines you will require coal uh, you will require oil and 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 what not now having said that if you look at 19 the early uh, 1900s oil used to be called as a sustainable fuel not many people know that and the reason and being this- because oil ended up replacing the technology before that which was uh the bullock cart or horse cart there is an article from times of london and in times of uh, you know and the new york times i think it was in 1890s where they came up with a, a projections that by 1950 if we continue to increase the usage and intensity of horse carts in the cities uh then both manhattan as well as london will be buried three story deep in horse poop uh and horse poop used to be like uh, a problem of like uh, you know uh, from a both hygiene standpoint as well as air quality standpoint right and suddenly like uh, the problem reached a tipping point where the government had to take action uh, it became a political problem and then a lot of money went into um, electric vehicles or gasoline engines and so on and so forth so don't get me wrong i mean oil and gas technology of 1910 was called the sustainable technology of that era interesting um but then the problem occurs when you apply the lens of efficiency and industrialization to any new technology and and you forget to apply the lens of sustainability to that and third is of course our human consumption that needs no limit so this entire concept of if the economies have to grow uh societies have to consume more is the root of the problem here so if my income level goes from let's say $1000 per annually as a student to um you know let's say $200000 annually Uh, as an entrepreneur that should not mean i should be consuming more because and then to look at like oil and gas so as uh, uh oil and gas was deemed as a sustainable technology of of the 1900s a lot of money flowed in a lot of capitalists saw opportunity to get more returns and that led to the, the birth of the likes of gm ford volkswagen around the world the car companies wanted us to consume more so that means hey if you don't have a car uh that means you're not rich you don't have a status more people buying started buying cars led to the demand for more oil and gas and then it has reached a point now where we can't just keep on sustaining um oil and gas consumption because the damage it does to the environment and the gdg emissions point that you mentioned about right so i can go on and on and on about how humans as a deeply consumptive society end up creating problems every 50 60 years and what we are seeing with climate change is a similar issue now and apply the lens 40 50 years forward yes batteries are uh, you know the technology which are you know which are uh, acting as an alternate technologies to oil right now but to create those batteries you're mining lithium from globally mm-hmm. right you're mining rare earth metals globally and how how much can you sustain intensive mining for lithium and rare earth metals from globally um how much can you sustain uh, discarding uh, used batteries into into landfills or into like uh, oceans and what not so i think in the 30 40 years we might end up with a similar issue so sustainability is a bigger problem and climate is just um one pillar of that where now we ended up damaging like pumping 51 gig- gigatons of 
uh, carbon dioxide, DHGs annually into the atmosphere, basically treating our atmosphere as an open sewer. Now, whether technologies can alone can solve this, I don't think so. I think in, in order of things, if you look at my work uh, with the government of India, when we used to work, we rolled out a pathway uh, for what would it take for India to achieve not net zero, but 2050, reduce our emission footprints by emission intensity by 50, 60%. And we said the number one driver of that is not solar and wind. It's basically the way we build our cities, uh, the way we travel. That's the first lever that we need to pull. Second lever is, okay, once you've decided like how we travel, as an example, you know, we realized that 70% of the emissions, emission mitigation can actually come from a resource efficiency standpoint either from a behavioral standpoint or technology standpoint, if you can reduce the resource consumption, that's the low-hanging fruit. And then you talk about like, okay, as an example, moving from moving to public transport, uh, building mm-hmm. cities where uh, the public transport is connected, is, is affordable, uh, and is convenient. And then you think about like, okay, how do I electrify my public transport? And that's the second lever. And then third, instead of transport running on coal or oil, can it run on electricity? And then the third lever is like, how, is how do you uh, decarbonize electricity, right? by using solar and wind. Yeah. Unfortunately, again, uh, we are just focused on solar, wind, geothermal, batteries uh, as, as a savior, which I don't think is a savior. We are again committing the same mistakes. Not mm-hmm. to mention like I'm against solar and wind. I think uh, these are absolutely critical uh, in terms of uh, our objectives to achieve net zero in, in grid and whatnot. But let's talk about getting to net zero, uh, becoming more resource efficient from a consumption standpoint. You made an interesting point that the entire climate space, if we really need to tackle this, we need to live a very sustainable life. And that may mean that for us to reduce our overall consumption, but it seems very impractical for me at this point in time, because once we have tasted the blood of, you know, the entire globalization and the entire lifestyle that we have, or at least the 10% of the population have, now we want in some sense, to get the 90% of the rest of the population to that level as well. And then probably the question becomes that how can we bring those 90% of the population to the top 10% without hurting the environment 90% times? And this perhaps may be a new question, but if we cannot reduce our emission, is there a way or do we have feasible technology to actually get the entire greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere? and probably dump it into the ground? Good points and good questions there. Uh, the entire concept of human behavior, right? And uh, can, you, uh, can you provide behavioral nudges um, to, to humans to reduce their consumption and emission? I'll talk about that later on, but let's, let's look at a very practical, practical case. So Bogota in Spain and Atlanta in the US are very wealthy cities. By that, what I mean is their per capita uh, income level in terms of US dollars is the same. Uh, and have almost the same population. Now for the same population and same income level, uh, Bogota's per capita emission is one seventh of Atlanta. So this entire concept of like, oh, as we become rich, uh, should we be consuming more resources? That's not true. And it's because Bogota is, is a very, it has been planned, taking into account like, how do we create a city which is connected, which is convenient, and which is affordable for everyone, right? Why do we need to um, have uh, wide, you know, huge city sprawls when you mm. can build like high-rise buildings uh, that can house more people for the same, uh, you know, land footprint? Can you not build these uh, residential zones close to commercial zones? 
uh, and have like a great public transport that transport people from residential zones to, to commercial zones, uh, again, in a very convenient, uh, affordable uh, and connected manner. Uh, or, you know, I, I'll take my words back. It's Barcelona, not Bogota. So Barcelona and Atlanta are of the same income levels in terms of per capita income. They are both developed uh, cities, yet Barcelona is one seventh of the emissions of, of Atlanta. We did a study uh, on low carbon cities and we realized that, for example, Mexico, Mexico City, Bogota, uh, Barcelona are prime examples of how model cities should be built. If we can just like look at these cities, understand what they have done really, really well, and apply that to to other cities or building new cities, I think there are a lot of low-hanging fruits to be plucked uh, from there itself in terms of emission mitigation or behavioral nudges, right? If people in Bogota can use a lot more of public transport, why can't people in Atlanta can, right? That's the least you can do in terms of your contribution to, to the climate problem. If you ask anyone today, any any consumer, they'll tell you that, oh, we are worried about uh, the climate problem. Tell us what I can do. The mm-hmm. least that you can do is basically look at your own consumption behavior. How many times uh, in a week are you eating meat? If you're eating red meat uh, or beef uh, thrice a week, can you re- reduce it to twice a week? Uh, is it a more difficult ask than actually asking the families in coal mining towns to shut down altogether and change their jobs, right? These are small, small things. But this is the only sustainable way of solving, uh, solving the climate problem. Now we are starting to see some of those imp- impacts already where corporations such as Nike, Unilever are starting to mention uh, emission footprints on their products or life cycle uh, footprints of their products. And that enables, and they are seeing that as a differentiator, as a brand differentiator for themselves as opposed to their competitors. Again, this was made possible because consumers demanded it. They said like enough is enough. I'm not going to buy a shampoo which has high emissions versus a shampoo which has low emissions. Or think of like the cup of coffee that you drink. For every cup of coffee that you drink on an average at Starbucks, uh, you are contributing to around 14 uh, kilos of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. 80 80 to 90% of those emissions are in the logistics and the Mm -hmm. final retail time. How much is yeah. that 14 kilos, if a layman wants to understand, comparing it to, let's say, maybe using a car or something, how do you compare that 14 kilos of emission? An average Indian is basically um, emitting around 1.8 tons of carbon dioxide every year. Uh, and that's basically three kilos of carbon dioxide every day. And my um, Starbucks coffee itself is 14 kilos? Exactly. Now, that's an average number, right? So that takes into account like, not like, you know, 70% of the population is not exactly drinking from Starbucks in India, right? Mm-hmm. But in the U.S., that's the same number is around uh, six times of that uh, in terms of per capita emissions every day. So these small, small contributions might seem small, uh, but we act together as a society. I think that's the only way we can figure out the climate problem. I am very optimistic about the technology solutions like geoengineering and carbon, you know, carbon capture, as you talked about. You know, that's the last 20 or 30 percent where we have done all everything from a behavioral nudging and energy standpoint, resource efficiency standpoint, and, and, and let's figure out. How do we get to net zero from like net point one or net point two? That's where these technologies should be more relevant. I know I'm, what I'm saying might be very controversial to a lot of solar and wind companies and a lot of policymakers projecting solar and wind as the savior of the world. I don't think so. That's the case. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I agree with your point that in most of the cases, the poorest of the society, and in this case, probably the miners and mining workers normally take a hit. And what you're saying is that if we really want to get to that zero emission future, the first step towards that can be just the way we live in a very sustainable way without hurting the standard of living. 
Exactly. Let's probably take a segue from here. We talked about what we can do to reach to that zero emission level. But until that happens, how do we deal with the entire climate change disasters happening around? And how does climate AI come into this entire picture? I, I want to set the record straight here. Climate change is not new. So there are two variations of climate change. One is, of course, the natural variations. Mm-hmm. And, and the other is the variations in climate change introduced by us, the humans, pumping more and more GHG into the atmosphere. So we need to adapt, no matter what, whether we reach net zero or not, we are starting to see uh, shifts already, shifts at permanent level, right? So just to give you some concrete examples, in our work at Climate AI, some of the regions where, you know, you can't grow coffee anymore, right? Because the growing season is shifting, the growing season is reducing, you are seeing a lot more of intense precipitation in regions of Colombia uh, or Peru where coffee is being grown. Uh, and that intense precipitation that used to be around a uniform during the growing season is a lot more like variable. So what that does is like, uh, it also creates a hotbed for pests and diseases in coffee, ultimately like impacting the income levels of the farmers there. So it's, it's, it has already started to happen. And one of the work that we did was, again, we looked at map of Africa and we said that, okay, if you were to look at growing seasons of corn uh, as a crop in Africa, when are we going to see a permanent shift in the growing seasons for suitability for growing corn in multiple regions of Africa due to climate change. And we were surprised and shocked that in some regions, the tipping point has already happened. So those regions are never going to see the same climate suitability for growing corn ever again. It's a race against the clock, uh, where in the next 10 years or next 15 years, we'll see like whole of Africa actually seeing that shift, permanent shift already. So you made a good point, like whether we reach net zero or not, we need to adapt and that's what we do. So we are creating, you know, the industry's first climate resilience platform. I know there are a lot of buzzwords in there. So what that means is, one, we believe that if 70% of the emissions come from uh, Fortune 1000 companies, they need to see that investing in climate and making their operations and business strategy more resilient to climate change Mm -hmm. uh, is going to make them money is going to build them a good brand. It will also help them to get more customers. Now, if they see that, then their actions will be a lot more concrete in terms of either reducing emissions or adapting to climate change. And that's what we do. We work with food companies. We work with food processors. We work with seed companies in helping them understand that on a month-to-month basis, on a day-to-day basis, and on a decade-to-decade basis, how is fast climate change going to impact their operations? And then B, how can they become more resilient? And the only way they can make their supply chains more resilient, which is if they work closely with the farmers they buy from. So our tools get deployed with the farmers, but then we realize farmers don't have the money to pay for it and we don't want them to pay for it. The incentive is if the farmers are more resilient, the crop supply chains are more resilient and it ends up benefiting both farmers and the food company. And it's the food companies and food processors who are paying for it. So I'll give you an example of a seed company that we work with. Typical uh, client of ours would be, uh, you know, let's say an onion seed company whose job is to work with farmers globally on growing onion. By the way, like farmers are the ones actually growing onion seeds as well, not just onion crops. And then these companies uh, give an onion contract to farmers process them into seeds and then sell them to farmers again. What these companies are seeing now is huge variability year on year uh, on their Mm. onion production regions and onion quality regions. So what we did was, A, we developed some tools which they deployed with the farmers and within their production teams that can help them first understand the risk coming up across the onion growing regions 
the extreme uh, weather risk anywhere from like a day out to three months out in long run. Uh, B, and, and that's the most important part, our platform also converts the risk of extreme weather into uh, impact on onion quality and feed in the global regions and, and give them like this information at least two or three months in advance. So that now they know that there's a high chance, let's say, you know, in Israel, where a heat wave might end up impacting uh, onion crops. Now they can, what they can do is two things. Either they can work with the farmers in Israel and inform that, hey, you need to harvest a week earlier than before and then save some production. Or they can allocate more production to the Southern Hemisphere where and they grow in like complementary uh, growing seasons. Interesting. Um, and how do you ensure the reliability of the forecasts that you make, uh, especially the ones made for long terms? Because, you know, climates are in general very uncertain in nature. That's a good question. So basically, like the reliability of the forecast of the platform is attached to what these guys currently use. And what we are seeing in most of the cases with our clients is uh, many of them are still relying on historical averages to take decisions on the production side, um, on the sales side and whatnot. And you know, we, we are very transparent to our clients that, hey, we don't have a crystal ball. No one can actually predict climate, forget like 10 years down the line, uh, even like a day out. So we are very transparent. But what matters more is giving them a band of uncertainty and being very clear. And that's where our technology actually is, is the best in being able to forecast stream weather going beyond two weeks and reducing that band of uncertainty for our customers. Now they know that, okay, you know, they are used to dealing with uncertainties and these uncertainties lead to like uh, decisions on how much inventory they need to maintain, how much production they need to make. So if we're reducing that uncertainty for them, uh, that leads to reduction cost savings or increased market share for these companies. Got it. And where are your tools and technologies deployed as of now in the world? You know, in India itself, about 10,000 farmers commit suicide every year. Does your solution work over there uh, for developing countries such as India? Our solution works globally. You need to give us the latitude and longitude of the farm mm -hmm. um, and the crop type. Do we even have adequate environment data collection in India for your point. Yeah, models exactly. to work? Which is one of the reasons why we are working on mostly in US and Europe right now. And as you rightly pointed out, there is not much of weather data infrastructure available in developing economies. Having said that, we are now working on new age innovations where we call ourselves as the SpaceX of climate, where we'll be able to develop these innovations faster than the government, deploy them faster and cheaper. And where we're thinking about like, okay, if there's not much of weather data infrastructure available in developing economies, how do you use cutting edge techniques such as GANs, uh, generation level series networks, to, to estimate uh, some of the weather parameters uh, at a higher resolution? in those countries. So we are creating synthetic data sets in multiple locations that is allowing us, our models to provide a more reliable estimate. It's still not perfect, it's far from perfect, but it's, I think it's, it's a step in the right direction. Do you think your forecasts can be used in other sectors as well to industries which are impacted by climate change? Yeah, so first of all, I would like to mention that, yes, yeah, so forecast is basically what our technology does. Uh, mm -hmm. What our product does is three things. One is forecast, then converts that, converting that into business value through actionable insights. And third is communicating that value up and up, down the supply chain. And, and that's where, like, uh, if you are thinking about climate adaptation, especially for food companies, they, you know, they cannot do that unless the risk is communicated to their customers or even to their farmers they work with at the same time. Um, now, to your point, our product is very much uh, fluid and could be applied to multiple sectors. But here's the thing, right? 
converting these forecasts into business value is more important or equally important as actually doing the forecast. You know, if you go in and tell the farmers that, hey, is a risk, is a forecast for heat risk, is a forecast for a drought risk, they just can't do anything with that. Hmm. You have to make it more actionable, which is, hey, how would that forecast, how would this heat risk impact my production quality or my crop quality? And what can I do to reduce mitigate that impact? Now, that makes it more actionable. We are very uh, vertical focused on currently focused on food and agriculture value chain. Uh, where we are acquiring a lot of data from our customers and clients that is making our models even better in forecasting uh, the impact of climate change on food production. And it will reach a tipping point where for every new customer coming in, the value that their data provides is a lot more. That's the beauty of AI, uh, which we all talk about. And mind you, it's not just about yield. It's also about nutrition and safety of food, right? Which no one talks Mm -hmm. about. There's a report from Lancet Institute that climate change is also going to reduce uh, the iron concentration uh, in rice in India. And rice being a staple diet, one in two women in India have high propensity propensity to anemia. Climate change is actually reducing the iron content in a staple diet. I get freaked out uh, learning about that concept, right? So similarly on food safety, one of the biggest causes of liver cancer globally is the toxin called aflatoxin. These aflatoxins are a reaction to fungus uh, that grows in crops, especially in tropical regions, such as groundnuts and whatnot. During the summers, there's a high, there's a high risk of drought and a high risk of heat simultaneously. And, and, they, and these aflatoxins get in the food supply and they cannot be, once they get in, uh, their concentration is so low uh, that you cannot detect them using normal methods. And basically, like we all are consuming those same groundnuts and whatnot. And these microtoxins or aflatoxins are responsible for like one third of the cases of liver cancer globally. So our mission is, that by the next five years, our tools should have been deployed with at least 100 million farmers and at least with 600 companies in food and agriculture. Uh, and then Got we'll it. move to another sector after that. Makes sense. Do you also work with governments? You're living in the US. What do you think about Biden and Kamala Harris's stance on the entire climate change and the changes it will bring? Uh, this may be a little controversial question, but if you're up for it. As of now, we're not directly working with the government, but our intention is to work with the government because climate change and food security is of strategic importance for every government, right? Uh, in fact, we are seeing that even in some of the red states uh, in the US uh, with the Republican states where, while there might not be a lot of consensus on whether climate change is man-made or not man-made, but there, an, there is an absolute consensus on that climate change impacts are very real. Mm. And we need to do something about that. Uh, we want to work with the governments on, on climate change and food security as an agenda um, and how do we think of it from a social and, and, and country level standpoint. Coming back to uh, Biden's infrastructure plan, I think it's ambitious and it's a step in the right direction. But I would say like it's still too little. The plan is a step in the right direction, but it's more about uh, can we have like a more ambitious climate legislations, legislations on, in, in place. My, my view is the plan still focuses a lot more on clean technologies which is mm-hmm. great, but I don't think it's putting a lot of emphasis on resource efficiency as we should be. Interesting. What's the one myth that you often hear about climate change that you want to bust on this podcast? One clear myth is climate change is not a long-term problem, period. You, you might have seen like uh, a lot of climate change experts talking about their kids, uh, bringing their kids into the conversation that, hey, when I look in, you know, into the eyes of my daughter and I want to be able to say that, you know, uh, we are leaving a good future for you. And that's mm-hmm. great. That's true. But the problem is in front of our doorstep right now. As I mentioned to you earlier, 
some of the regions have, are already seeing this permanent shift. So I don't think it's a long-term problem. It's as pertinent, as real-time a problem as any other problem out there. So three of the last four years have been the hottest. Uh, the three last wildfire seasons in California have been the most intense in the recorded history. And uh, the five of the last seven hurricane seasons in the U.S. Atlantic basis have been the most intense, right? So I can go on and on and about, on about like why it's a now problem rather than a future problem. And that's the lens we should apply to it. I would say it's, it's an existential problem even for us. Absolutely. I think it's definitely one of the existential problem. And considering the lifespan of human has also increased, we are bound to face this issue right now. That probably means that we should start focusing this problem for ourselves, if not for our future generation. Thanks a lot, Himanshu. It was splendid talking to you. And I definitely learned a lot about climate space and the energy sector. Of course. Thanks for having me, Mike.